We thank you for providing the means, the logistics, and the commitment base of believers for this plan. And we pray for their effective gospel witness in the Point Pleasant area. We thank you for what you're doing in our midst with young people, both in Sunday school and our youth ministries. We pray for those who labor in these ministries, that you will encourage them in their faith. Fill them with godly wisdom and give them strength to preserve, to persevere in this exciting ministry. Lord, we pray for those that by you can't be with us this morning due to illness and difficult circumstances. We pray for their comfort and healing, that they would be able to discover an even closer walk with you, that they abide with you in their hardships. Lord, we have one of our own leading this week for, for boot camp for Frank and Savannah. And uh, Lord, we pray for your hand of protection and watch care over him as he goes of his life. We pray for mom and dad too as they uh, send their uh, lost son to, uh, to boot camp and uh, just pray your comfort for them. We pray for the eyes to see gospel opportunities in our daily lives to share your love and your compassion for the salvation of those who are in darkness and need your hope and spiritual awakening. Now as we go through our sermon, Father, we ask you to still our souls that we may the many distractions of our week, in order that we may hear the beauty of your word as it is preached by your servant Mary. Lord, bless us with your holy word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Eric. If I've never met you, I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my privilege to open up God's word with you this morning. Just uh, before that, I'm, I'm really excited about the next couple of weeks, and I just wanted to share a couple of reasons why. Eric shared a couple during the announcements, but I wanted to reinforce a couple of things. Um, next week is going to be a huge week for us. We're going to be having a joint service. It's going to be the last time Redeemer Point Pleasant is with us for a while. We'll still be coming together for, um, we're going to come together for Advent and come together for Easter, but aside from that, they're going to be sent out and meeting every Sunday morning over at the Elks and Point after this uh, next week. And uh, we're going to be starting a series to kick that off called Simply Church, just to get to the idea that church is supposed to be simple. It's not supposed to be as complicated as man can make it. And um, the mission of making disciples and things like church planting that come out of that should also be done with simplicity and sincerity. We're going to be kicking off community groups. If you're not a part of one, it's a great time to start. You'd be starting with every other person that would be starting, so you wouldn't feel left out in any way. And also, we're going to be having a big meal together to celebrate sending out the new church plan. We still need help with that, so would you please sign up and help out with that? But before we get into any of that, this week we are finishing the book of Ecclesiastes, and we are talking about a wonderful topic. We're going to be talking about the pursuit of pleasure this morning. Um, love this passage. Been looking forward to preaching Ecclesiastes 12. Ecclesiastes 12, uh, well, the 12th chapter is sort of like if you were preaching through Romans, you wouldn't be able to wait until you got to Romans chapter 8. You'd be, oh, so excited to be able to get to that main course. Well, uh, Solomon, in his typical frustrating fashion, leaves the best chapter for last. So you have to wait all the way until the end to get to the conclusion and what this madness that he's been searching after is all about, but it is really good. It's a great passage for several reasons. It's intensely practical. Um, it really brings this book to a beautiful and intricately developed conclusion, and it's intensely practical regardless of whatever your stage or age in life is. And regarding that last point, I want to ask you, because most of the things that I listened to, most of the commentary work that I did, most of the sermons that I listened to in preparation for this, miss the main point of this text. And I think it's just so completely simple. I never like to believe that I'm smarter than those who I'm reading or listening to. So usually if I'm missing it, I figure I must be missing it. Um, but... I want to ask you just to, in your own, just look down in your Bibles, or you can look up there at, at, at verse 1, and then the first couple of verses. I want to ask you a couple of questions, so just read it on your own. I'll, I'll read it along. Remember also your Creator 
in the days of your youth, before the days of evil come, and the years draw near to which you say no pleasure in them. So who is this passage being written to is what I want to ask you. Um, maybe a better way to ask the question is take a look at the first few verses. And what is the actual commandment at the beginning of the chapter? And if you find the commandment, you're going to know who the intended audience is. And it's not the audience that's usually preached to in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And I'll give you a hint. The commandment is right there in verse 1, and it's not hiding. So with all of that, I'm ready to get started. So it begins with a commandment to remember also your creator in the days of your youth. And although the passage spends the majority of the text talking about the inevitable issues that are going to come along with getting older, the commandment that begins the text is actually talking to young people. That is not to say that he doesn't offer a lot of wisdom to older generations, which we're certainly going to get into. Uh, I would say that the actual application is split right down the middle between the old and the young, and that the wisdom that he imparts is equally applicable to both groups. But the commandment in the passage is super-duper clear, and that's why I just don't understand how people seem to miss the point on this text. The commandment is, remember God in the days of your youth. So as we end this book, we're going to take the approach that Solomon actually wrote the book of Ecclesiastes at an older age, near the end of his life. There's a fair amount of commentators who disagree with that for some reason, but it seems like all you need is common sense and maybe even just a shred of life experience, and you'll agree as you start to read through chapter 12. We're going to take a different approach that Solomon had experienced many different pursuits in trying to fill the void that is deep inside of every one of us. And the reason that he shares the commandment to remember God in the days of your youth and then goes on to give seven verses about aging is actually something that should be pretty easy to understand. And hopefully I'll be able to get across pretty clearly. So to put it simply, I believe that Solomon ends the book with a commandment to the youth and also addressing the inevitability of age because he is coming to grips with the emptiness that the pursuits of his youth had led him to. And as he begins to age, he's beginning to see those fleeting pursuits of pleasure for what they really were and beginning to come to grips with just how empty he was left inside by the things that he had pursued. The things that he had strived for were like striving after the wind. That shouldn't be a surprise to you. He's repeated that over and over in the book. He, he was chasing after things that he was never going to catch. And even if he did catch the things that he was striving after, I don't think that he would have known to do with, with them with, after he caught them. Um, if you ever been out in the side yard here? I was thinking through, um, we have these groundhogs that are the size of miniature bears. And they're always out there. And um, me and Daniel, after we get a little punchy, um, this is a regular thing. Poor Debbie, she has to work here and observe this. Um, we'll just run out and chase after the badgers. And there's only a little tiny hole in the fence. And I don't get how a badger this big around can fit under a hole in the fence this big. I guess that's science, you know. Um, but we always chase after them. And, and the thing that I was thinking of as I was putting this together is it's fun to watch them waddle away. It's fun to watch them shimmy under the fence. But it brings up a good question. What would I actually do if I caught one? <laughs> <laughs> and that's sort of what Solomon's pursuits were like. That kind of brings you to how he's approaching chapter 12. What would I actually do if I caught these pursuits that I was looking for. And even if he caught them, it wouldn't do what he was hoping that it would do. He would still wake up the next day feeling just as empty as he did inside because that void was never meant to be filled by the things that he was pursuing. And, and do you truly get that? I mean, if, I, if you don't get that, then um, we've missed something major 
in the teaching of this book, that the things that Solomon was pursuing to fill a void that he talked about all the way back in chapter 3 when he says that God has placed this void of eternity in the hearts of man, and he's saying all of these things that I'm pursuing just are never going to fill that void. So even if he caught that groundhog, he'd wake up the next day feeling just as empty as if he didn't because all of us are born with a gigantic void inside. That's what he was getting at in chapter 3. And when it comes to trying to fill that void, Solomon shares this as a man who had been there, done that, and got the t-shirt, as the saying goes. He, he tried fulfillment with riches. The man was the richest man who had ever lived, according to history. His riches, if you were to calculate what it says about him in 1 Kings, would take Elon Musk, Bill Gates, um, Jeff Bezos, you could combine all of their income and it wouldn't scratch the surface. It said that he was so rich that silver was like garbage in the kingdom because he had so much money. He used $100 bills to light his cigars, if you know what I'm saying. So he tried to fill that hole with wisdom, but he could never outsmart all the stupid in the world. All of you guys who are thinking that you're going to fill that void through higher education, I'm just telling you, you're never going to tip the balance. There will always be more stupid to outweigh the intelligence that you're pursuing. It's not going to fill the void. He tried to fill that void with sex and with women. The man had 700 wives, 300 concubines. All of that, and it still wasn't enough to be able to fill that hole. And I could keep going, but you get the point. He tried to fill that void with every single thing that you and I could possibly get our hands on. Imagine being the richest, the wealthiest, and one of the most power pe powerful people in the world, having access to every single thing that you've ever wanted, having all of your dreams completely granted and fulfilled, just to find out that too much of everything is still not enough. It's a pretty empty feeling, right? This is why I told you in the first message that this is the first book that I ever really identified with, and I might have actually gotten saved while reading Ecclesiastes. I was born with that same hole inside of me as everybody else. This notion that we are all just born with this little spark of the divine inside of us and we need to just find our way, swim upstream back to the Creator is hogwash. Every single one of us is, is born with a void inside of ourselves. It's the reason why you don't have to teach a baby how to steal from another baby. They realize, hey, I have a void. I see that that baby has milk, truck, whatever it is. So if I just take this little meat hook on the end of my hand and ball it up and whack them, I could take it. And now I have that thing that I think is going to fulfill me. But it doesn't, because they're crying again in five minutes, just like you and me. So I was born with that same void that everybody else had. But I took a swift and really reckless approach to trying to fill it. I, I seriously tried every single thing that I could get my hands on to be able to fill that void. I, I tried every drug that I could. I tried every relationship that I could. I tried every experience that I could. I tried every adrenaline pursuit that I could. And then I'd always wake up the next day just a little bit emptier inside and with that hole just a little bit more gaping than it was the day before. And ironically, the all-out, unfettered, reckless pursuit of pleasure never seemed to give me the pleasure that I was looking for. It gave me a heart full of emptiness, and it gave me a head full of regret, if I'm to be just really frank with you. And by God's grace, and I mean this, only by God's grace, I don't live in regret and shame to this day. And I'm going to get into that more later. And if you're sitting here feeling the sting of regret, feeling the sting of your pursuits landing you in the place of shame, you don't have to feel that sting of regret either. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. But my take is that Solomon begins writing about how he sees life at an older age, and he still remembers that sting of regret. 
and how the pursuit of pleasure never did for him what he thought that it was going to do. So he begins to talk about how he's probably never, something he probably never thought about that much in his younger years. He begins to address this concept of aging. Look again at the end of verse 1. Remember also the Creator in the days of your youth, before the days, the evil days come, and the days draw near of which you say, I have no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light have no moon, and the stars are darkened, and the cloud return after the rain, and in the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of the song are brought low and I'll go on more in a moment. Remember that this is still connected to the commandment, remember the Lord in the days of your youth. So he begins to make a transition here. And he warns not only about the need to remember the Lord in the days of our youth, but to do so, at the end of verse 1, before that day draws near. What day? And draws near to what? Not to be morbid, but he's talking about before you get old and die. And then he adds, before you say, I no longer have any pleasure in them. Pleasure in what? He's referring back to the antecedent to this is to the days, before you have no pleasure in your days. So his heart is to encourage us to spend our days taking pleasure in the Lord before the day comes where we're unable to find pleasure in the days that we have on this planet. I couldn't help, I don't mean to be morbid in bringing this up, but um, different people just seem to be affected by different people's deaths. And the death of Anthony Bourdain really just, it stung me when he, when he took his life. And as I studied this, I couldn't help but think of Mr. Bourdain. I read a quote from a man who eulogized him and was having a hard time coming to grips with Mr. Bourdain's suicide. And his quote shook me quite a bit. He said, Anthony Bourdain visited all the places I wanted to visit, dated all of the women that I dreamt of dating and ate all of the foods that I dreamt of eating. And what he was saying is I can't understand how somebody who had achieved every single benchmark for pleasure, whose life was actually a testimony to achieving benchmarks of pleasure, still had that same gaping hole inside of them that each one of us have. And where he got to the point where a man whose life was dedicated to pleasure could no longer derive pleasure from those things. Think about that. Let that sink in for a moment. Let the gravity of that. And that's exactly what Solomon is talking about here. It's a sober plea. Listen to this. This is like, kind of like my main point here, Solomon's main point. It's a sober plea to recalibrate your pleasure sensors and everything that you, before everything you took pleasure in falls prey to the law of diminishing returns. And eventually, your pleasure sensor dries up to where you can't derive pleasure anymore. And what he's saying is powerful. What he's trying to say as he begins to transition to talking to older saints is it doesn't have to be like that. It's not a prerequisite. Even though you look around and it seems to be that that's the modus operandi that most people live their life by, you don't have to choose that life. When you look at it and it looks like that's the only choice, the emperor has no clothes on, you don't have to go in that direction. You can call it out for what it is. Have you ever met somebody? I'm sure you have, who's just unable to find pleasure in anything. I mean, they get to the point where they're no longer able to take pleasure in the changing of the seasons because it's easier to complain about the weather. They're no longer able to take pleasure in music because it's easier to complain about the noise that all the kids are listening to today and their pants hanging around. The... They're no longer able to take pleasure in companionship because I've been burned by companionship too many times. So now companionship is too much work. There's a line in a song that I absolutely love. If anybody knows where this is from, um, see Marcy afterwards and she'll give you $10. Um, it, it says, if children playing all around is to you a noise, not pleasant sound, and you'd be lost on a playground, then this song is for you. 
And I've met Christians who have fallen into that trap. They say that they want churches full of children and new life. As long as the children don't make any noise, don't make a mess, don't talk during the service, don't run around too much, don't disturb you during worship, and don't do anything else that children generally do, then yes, Lord, fill this place with a bountiful children house. We want a church of children as long as they don't act like children. I remember I actually went to go help plant the church, and this is really just tangential and has nothing to do with anything, but it it was funny. Um, and, And they would preach about Oh, children are the, ne- that's the, who we have to reach. That's, that's what the church's mission should be. Until this one Easter service, it was a mobile church, and they had one of those projectors that was set up in the middle of the aisle to project up there, and Elijah's about three years old, and he sees a blinking green button and does what any three-year-old would do on a blinking three, one minute before the Easter service actually starts and goes over and starts pushing it and melts down the projector right before the biggest service of the year. We saw how much they really valued having children in the service at that point as we were berated for our awesome parenthood. Um, so... Did they really want a church full of children? He's about to describe aging. As I go through these verses, remember that this is going to be bracketed within the larger framework of seeking pleasure. And we're going to spend a lot of time on that when we close. But in the next few verses, he's going to make it almost morbidly clear you're going to age. Aging's going to stink. It's inevitable. So far, the death rate on this planet except for Elijah, um, is one-to-one. Um, you've, do you know anyone else that's ever been taken up in a... Uh, uh, Enoch. Yeah, all right. One-to-two. Right. <laughs> Math is not my strong point. Um, but you're going to age. It's going to be hard, and it is inevitable. But how we age doesn't have to be is the point that he's going to make. So his language is, is quite vivid here. In verse 2, let's look at it. He says, Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return to the rain. So I've seen commentators say that this is referring to either losing our vision and our thoughts beginning to get cloudy as we get older. You know those moments where you just say, ah, uh, oh, man, I'm, I'm having a 60-year-old moment. And, and I can't recollect that thought. There's a little bit of cloudiness there. Or it might simply be referring to it's increasingly difficult to get outside as we get older. I, I think that the first interpretation is probably the best. Verse 3, he goes on to say, In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dim, the grinders are few, is referring to your teeth falling out. He's talking about aging. There was no modern dentistry. I mean, even age modern dentistry. Look at this. I've got like nine teeth in my mouth. Um, The grinders are few. And he's saying that's inevitable. It's going to be a part of aging. And then the ones who look through the windows is dimmed. That's referring to our eyes. If I wasn't wearing these... I wouldn't be able to preach. I mean, I, I could see this guy. Is that Mike DeFalco right there with the glasses? No? And there's my mom and dad sitting there in the front row. I, I wouldn't be able to, because that's, you did throw me off by sitting on a different side of the church today. Um, in verse 4, he's beginning to talk about how sleep doesn't come as easily for you anymore. He says, and the doors are shut, and when the sound of the grinding is low, one rises up at the sound of a bird, saying all it takes is a little chirp, chirp, you're up, falling back to sleep is not an option, might as well get up and pee for the 30th time, because that's what I do at this age. Verse 5, he's saying that there's a whole new set of fears that accompany age that maybe you didn't think about when you were younger. He says, they're afraid also of what's high. They're afraid of heights. The terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags itself along. So you know, maybe some things that you didn't think about 
when you were younger that you have to start thinking about as you age? Falling. Falling is not something that most younger people think about when they're setting up their first apartments. How do I set up this first apartment in case I fall and I'm all alone? But that's something that you have to think about as you begin to age. I remember just two years ago, I was riding my skateboard, and um, we were, there was a curb, and this is a perfect illustration of it, and, and I, I took a header right off the skateboard, and it was like one of those shots where I just went like, ugh, like face first, and, and I thought I was all right, I just thought I got my bell rung, I've gotten my bell rung before a couple of times, so I, I wasn't, and then we go to the mall, it was right around Christmas time, we go Christmas shopping, and I just fall out, and I'm like, you know, and it was weird, so I had a concussion. I go and see my doctor, and he's like, how old are you again? 38. And he's like, I'll make you a deal. That's not too old. But when you could see your shoes without having to bend over your belly, then you're allowed to get back on the skateboard. It made made me feel old. But that falling was self-inflicted. I did that to myself. People, as you begin to age, can take a fall. That's not something that you consider when you're 20, 25 years old. Or driving, or driving at night. I didn't think of how I was going to get somewhere when I used to just... I would literally, this is not figurative language, I would hop in a car in New Jersey and then just end up in Seattle somehow. And that just seemed normal to me. That's not something that you do. As you begin to age, you start to think through, how am I going to get there? What am I going to do when I get there? Um, he also points out in verse 5, there's some things that just become harder and require more labor. The end of the verse is talking about how sexual desire begins to be taken from him. And then in verses 6 and 7, he's using medical, metaphorical language to talk about approaching death before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. This is not supposed to be depressing, believe it or not. Um, And this is why I took a fair amount of time setting up the context before I start to drive home some of the points that I'm going to drive home. Because without the context, the good news goes missing from this text. What he's doing is showing that these things that used to be the things that we ran to for pleasure are no longer readily available to us as we begin to age. He can no longer find his source of pleasure in his health, his sexual activity, this crazy notion that some people believe, young people believe in, that they're going to live forever. And in verse 8, he concludes that this is all vanity of vanities. But I want to point out one thing that he leaves from this list. He talks about the eyes. He talks about the teeth. The ears, the back, he's addressing all these things. But you notice the one thing that he leaves off? He never addresses the heart, does he? As the body begins to fall apart, brothers and sisters, you can be a testimony to the fact that the heart doesn't have to. That's why this is so important. Because the body begins to fail, pleasure doesn't have to begin to fail just because the body is. We can actually have more pleasure later in life than was ever available to us in a younger age. Remember back to verse 1? He doesn't say that the pleasure will fail. He says, remember the Lord while you're young before the pleasure does fail. Look, since it seems as if Solomon's giving bad news to older saints, I want to just share some, some good news, some encouraging news with you. I've met people twice my age who are twice as joyful and know twice as much about pleasure as I've ever known in my life. That's just, that's just truth. That's just, that's just a fact. In fact, if you were to ask me to name the people who taught me the most about joy, the ones who demonstrated joy the most, not just talked about it, the entire list would consist of people who are much older than myself. If you were to ask me the people who seem to really understand the pursuit of pleasure, once again, not just talking about pleasure, but really live out the pursuit of pleasure... I would not be naming any of my peers, but those who have some tread on their tires who still seem to enjoy every day as the gift of God that it is. Most of the people who have been my greatest mentors in life in terms of joy and pleasure, who are probably experiencing 
much of the bodily breakdown that this passage is talking about right here. So the issue becomes not about pleasure, but about where we derive our pleasure. There's nothing wrong with pleasure. And I want you to hear something even further. There is nothing wrong with the pursuit of pleasure. As C.S. Lewis has famously said, you've probably heard it, it's one of his most quotable quotes, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what a holiday of sea is. We are far too easily pleased. Brothers and sisters, there is a stewardship presented here. There's actually two of them. And here's the two stewardships. We have a stewardship to help people stop banging their heads against the wall in the pursuit of pleasure. Or at least to try to stand in the gap and warn them that there's another way. And we have a stewardship to live a life that emphatically demonstrates that there is more pleasure to be found in Christ than there could ever be found in all of the riches of this world. Verse 13, which will be the final conclusion, sort of proves that we have those two stewardships. Look with it, at it with me. It says, In the end of the matter, all that has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So first, we have a stewardship to help people stop banging their heads against the wall in the pursuit of pleasure. And you don't have to be old to teach people to stop banging their heads against the wall. All you need is a forehead with some bruises on it. And you can say, stop banging your head against the wall. You see these bruises here? This is all you're going to get out of the deal. Jesus calls every Christian in the Great Commission to be a disciple maker. And this is one of these primary ways that we can make disciples. People can get so intimidated by the term make disciples, but sometimes all it takes is being that person who has stuck a fork in the electrical socket who tells somebody holding a fork, hey, make sure you use that for eating and not for sticking in an electrical socket. One of the most powerful tools you have in making disciples is a life of messing up. Isn't that awesome? I mean, let me get a show of hands of anyone here who's ever messed up or done anything stupid. Uh, Debbie just raised both of Marshall's hands. That wasn't fair. <laughs> well, you know what that means? You have a whole toolkit when it comes to answering Jesus' call to make disciples. Let me demonstrate that. And I'm going to give you a wide range of just simple ones I'm going to fire off that can range from very simple to very difficult life lessons. Those who have ever, wor ever worked every shred of overtime to get the bigger house, the nicer car, the better toys, when you got to that point and you realized that it didn't do for you what you thought it was going to do for you, young dads in this church need to hear the mistakes that you made so that they don't duplicate them. For the mom who is so wrapped up in creating a perfect household that she forgets to take time to stop and enjoy her kids, the young moms in this church need to hear from you so that they don't duplicate that and miss out on important years. For the 28-year-old who went right out of high school and started getting into debt to get a degree that you're not using and that you'll be paying off until you're 84, we live in a day and age where students need to hear that that's a perspective that's worth considering when making educational decisions. For the guy who thought that he could have just one more drink before going for a drive and now has a DUI that's still costing him years later, our young people need to hear from your transparent honesty. For the woman caught up in body image who developed an eating disorder to get the body that she thought that she wanted only to realize that she was even more miserable because it was never a body issue but it was a heart issue all along, there's... Ladies who need to hear from your experience. Someone who's lived in fear of other people's approval 
teaching them that just because somebody is loud and mean doesn't mean that they're right. There are people who are dying to hear from your experience. I know that for me, if I could just grab a 20-year-old man by the shoulders and speak directly to your soul, that my piece of advice would be the years of thinking that you're invincible will eventually catch up to you and you will quickly realize just how mortal you are. All I needed was a few years of intensely messing up to be able to make disciples in that way. And taking it back to the context of the book, we have a special responsibility when it comes to the pursuit of pleasure. And be honest about the fact that most of the things that you pursued were pleasurable for a season or you never would have pursued them. That's something that's just missing in the way that we talk to young people. They're not stupid. Why would you have pursued these things that you're saying, hey, don't do this. Your daddy did them for 20 years, but you don't do it if it was never fun to begin with. But also be unapologetically honest about where it led you and the condition of your heart after making that your pursuit. And show them. This is where it leads off. Because we can do that, right? We could say, I pursued these things because I thought at the time it was the bee's knees. I got spanked as a result of pursuing these things. And getting spanked hurt more than the actual joy that I derived from the pursuit. But that's incomplete if you don't show them why Jesus is the greater pleasure. And that's where it's missing out. Also, we have a stewardship to live a life that emphatically demonstrates that there is more pleasure and joy to be found in Christ than there could ever be found in this world. In my opinion, this is the number one reason. Put a star next to this if you're taking notes that young people leave the church today because they're told that there is greater joy to be found in Christ, but it doesn't line up with the joyless Christianity that they're observing. So the argument goes a little something like this. Stay away from fill in the blank. Don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang out with girls that do. Um, don't go out partying like the other young people, because they might look like they're having fun, but there's no lasting joy in what they're doing. And when they hear you say that through gritted teeth and living a life with relatively little joy behind it, it sends a really confusing message to a young person. Or when they hear the importance of church, but see that it's not really a priority to mom and dad, are they supposed to see this as a source of pleasure and not just some inconvenience that you feel some morbid sense of uh, obligation to show up to one out of every four Sundays? And then they see that their friends are seeking pleasure in the things that you said do not actually bring pleasure, and that their friends are actually having fun. How confusing is that for a young person? Can you see how that would lead to some disorientation? And then they see the people seeking all these pleasures, that they're being warned about finding a sense of community with others who are seeking those pleasures, and those people seem happy. Well, there's another church split going on in the body of Christ. And it's confusing. This is why the book starts, off, the chapter starts off with a commandment to younger people, but then moves on to older saints. We have a responsibility, brothers and sisters. They need to see what it says about Moses in Hebrews chapter 11, who says that he was offered all of the greatest riches in, in Egypt, but the riches of Egypt were nothing compared to the reproaches of Christ. That wasn't even saying that it's nothing compared to Christ's treasure box. It was saying that to choose to endure affliction with the people of Christ was greater to him than all of the riches in Pharaoh's treasure chest. Are you able to live a life that believes that from your core and exudes it and shows it so that other people can see it and believe that you believe it and then maybe they might believe it themselves? Brothers and sisters, we have to show our young people that Christ is the greater joy, that he is the source of pleasure, or they will just see him as an option. We live in a post-Christian society. We're not going to legislate a movement back to Christianity in this country. And for those of you who fill your Facebook walls thinking that that's going to happen, newsflash, it won't. 
But he will not just become more attractive because he's going to become a more relevant option if we just make Jesus cool. To put it bluntly, they will just choose other options. We have to show them that Christ is the greatest pleasure and that he's superior to all the pleasures that this world has to offer. We have to actually believe that if we're going to show that to people or they're going to see through the hypocrisy. That's my cry to you as we close this book. If this hypocrisy wasn't a real thing, why does the term pastor's kid even exist? If dad is extolling the virtues of how great Jesus is and the unlimited pleasures that are at his right hand forevermore and how wonderful the church is, but all the kid sees is broken down dad coming home from church and grumbling about his job, complaining about all the people who have wounded him, and only wanting to talk about Jesus in the context of a boss that doesn't even seem to be a very good boss, seems to be a mean boss, then what is the kid supposed to believe? And then add to that that every time there's a problem in the church, they see that problems take precedent over your own children. Well, don't blame the kids when they reach for the inevitable solutions that I was just preaching about. So do you actually believe that Jesus is the greatest source of pleasures and that he is the only true and lasting joy? I mean, do you really believe it? You're not just giving a church answer. I mean, from the depths of your soul, do you really believe that the pursuit of Christ is the pursuit of pleasure and the pursuit of pleasure will always lead you to Jesus Christ? I'm preaching here. You get this? That the pursuit of Christ is the pursuit of pleasure. But the other side of the coin is true that the pursuit of pleasure should always lead you if you're really seeking pleasure to a pursuit of Jesus Christ. Christian hedonism, one of a beloved author's calls it. Our final verses wrap it up with this thought. Fear God and keep his commandments. Verses 9 through 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great prayer. The preacher also sought words of delight and uprightly he taught those words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed on the collected sayings and they are given by one shepherd, Jesus. My son, beware of anything beyond these of making many books of there is no end. Much study is a weariness in flesh. The end of the matter when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed to judgment, whether secret thing, whether done in good or evil. Look, there are four ways that you can interpret this final command. God commandments are one set of commandments out there. And I believe that they're superior, which is why I live by them. This is a little thing called Pascal's wager, if you're familiar with it. Pascal said... Look, there's, there's two ways here. I'll either live my life believing in Jesus and I get to the end of my life and find out that there was no Jesus and the worst that happened was I lived a good life or you don't believe in Jesus and find out that there was one and you get to the end and it doesn't work out so good. Um, Pascal's wager is one of the stupidest things that has ever been introduced to Christianity and it is not the gospel. If you don't believe me, Go home and read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he says that if I lived this whole life in pursuit of Christ and found out that there was no resurrection, pity me. My life's pathetic. I went all in on a lie. I pushed everything to the middle of the table because I believe there's an empty tomb and there's not one. That doesn't mean that I just lived a good life. That means that I believed in a fairy tale. So it can't be that. There's number two, which would be keeping God's commandments as a way to gain God's approval. Well, this ignores the fact that you couldn't keep God's commandments, so Jesus had to keep them for you. And now, because he's kept them for you, through faith in Jesus, you don't have to try to gain approval that you already have in him. Third, there would be keep God's commandments because he's bigger than you, and he'll punish you if you don't. This is the Santa Claus is coming to town theology. He sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so you better watch it. He'll squash you. I think it goes something like that. Or there's, I live by God's word because God is the ultimate source of pleasure, so why would I possibly try to seek lesser pleasure when I already know where the greatest source of pleasure is? 
Which one of those has lasting power? Man, this thing is saying a lot. The primary thing he's saying is true pleasure comes from seeking Christ. Why pursue pleasures? This is the big thing I want to drive home to you guys today. Why pursue pleasures as an end to themselves? When you have unlimited access to the fountain and creator of all pleasures, anything less is meaningless and striving after the wind. So a couple of points in conclusion. Check this out. You don't have to live with a head full of regret. The gospel is big enough for that. If this guy wrote this book at the end of his life, I'm just guessing, like, man, I do things just being married to one woman, and a very godly one, where I'm just like, that was stupid. 700? Can you imagine the boneheaded things that this dude did on a daily basis? He didn't have to live with a life of regret. Because the gospel is big enough. If you're sitting here with a life of regret wondering, how could God ever forgive me? Because he sent his son. You don't have to live in a life of shame. Because the gospel is big enough for that. I remember one time I went down to the beach early to pray. And there was this girl that was sitting there on the beach. And she was drinking a Gatorade bottle full of vodka. And she was just weeping. And I was like, man, should I shift into Pastor Eric mode, or should I still go and do my devotions? And I had just visited David Berkowitz up in prison, and he gave me a copy of his diary. And she was telling me some horrible things that she had done as I went to talk to her. And she said, I could never be forgiven for the things that I've done. And I handed her David's diary. And I said, you ever hear the son of Sam? She said, yeah. So you think he could be forgiven? Oh, gosh, no. I got to explain how the good news of Jesus was big enough for his sin, was big enough for my sin, and was certainly big enough for her sin. And not only was it big enough to cover it, but it was big enough that she didn't have to live in the shame that she was walking in any longer. When Jesus said it is finished, he didn't just mean the forgiveness that secures your eternity. He means you no longer have to live in shame for the things that you've done because he bore that on the cross too. Number three... You don't have to keep banging your head against the wall looking for pleasure because there's a source of pleasure that doesn't require banging your head against the wall. Number four, you don't have to look elsewhere in your pursuit of pleasure because all pursuit of pleasure leads to Jesus and Jesus leads you to all true pursuits of pleasure. Number five, it's never too late to seek pleasure in Christ. If you're sitting here wondering, man, I'm already the guy that's blown it. I thought of three people as I was putting this together. I thought of Marcy, who got, when were you, how old were you and got saved? Three, okay. I thought of Mike DeFalco. How old were you when you got saved, Mike? 45, 46. And that's a little younger than the last time you told me to shave a, you lying in church, Mike? <laughs> you do a cut. <laughs> that's good for a guy that works for numbers for a living. And uh, Dr. Joe, how old were you when you got saved? 40, okay, so 3, 45, 46, 52, somewhere around there, and 40. Um, any of you do anything that you regretted before you got saved? Any of you do anything that you wish you could take back? Isn't it awesome that Jesus is enough for that? It's never too late to come to Christ. Number six, remember the Lord while you're young. I used to deceive myself and say, yeah, this sounds true when I'm older and I'm done having fun. Boy, I wish I could have those years back. I first heard the gospel when I was 14 years old. I could have saved myself so much wreckage if I bent my knee right then rather than banging my head against the wall for what I thought was the pursuit of pleasure. And the last one, the seventh, is Jesus is the one that fills that void. If you're sitting here with that void in your heart this morning, you're not going to fill it with anything else. You can keep running, but Jesus runs faster. He is the one that fills that void. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being the great void filler. Thank you that we don't have to live in regret. We don't have to live in shame. Thank you that the gospel is sufficient. In Jesus' name, amen.